thank you everyone for joining us today. In this webinar, we're going to be talking you through six things that high-performing L&D teams do to drive engagement and impact based on our latest data that we've put together. Now, the good question is, why are we focusing on engagement and impact? Well, engagement is the primary, a primary requirement for learning to happen. So without engagement, anything that we'd expect to happen with learning after the point of creation falls apart, and that limits our ability to drive impact. And we call this the engagement gap. Now, if you've ever spent months launching a course that got very little engagement or completion, you felt like you're doing a lot from an L&D perspective, but your surveys are still showing people are unhappy with the lack of growth and development opportunities, or you've invested a lot of money buying a large course library only to end up with very little use of the licenses or the content, you've probably suffered from the engagement gap. So I'd love to know in the chat, you can just drop a Y for yes, if you've ever felt any of those pain points. But it's more common than you think, and it kind of gets borne out in the data that you can see on the screen here. The average course completion rate is just three to 6%. 75% of employees are dissatisfied with their company's L&D function. And worryingly, 88% of employees report not applying what they learned at work. So that's a huge reason behind the research we put together and the numbers we're going to talk you through today. But maybe a better question is, who are we? So my name is Gary Stringer. I'm the Senior Content Marketing Manager at HowNow. I'll be kind of giving you the run through of the numbers from the data perspective. And I'm also joined by Lulu Dinesh, who is our head of customer success. I spent years working with high performing L&D teams, understanding these secret sources for engagement and impact. So I should be able to give you a lot more insight into best practices and how these get used in practice. And if you're not familiar with how now, we are a learning experience platform working with fast growing companies like Checkout.com and Depop all the way up to global enterprises like Investec and Sanofi to help them bring relevant learning to their people in the flow of work. And the data we're sharing with you today is coming from an analysis of those top performing How Now customers and hundreds of their resources to identify what those secret sources are for engagement and impact. So we're gonna go through the six of them in a second. I will just check the chat, a few whys in there. So these are, are common pain points people are experiencing. Lulu. So the first one is that high-performing L&D teams verify that their content is up to date. Now, I want to talk you through a scenario that might also sound familiar. Let's imagine we're a sales rep, we're on a call, and we need to find the latest pricing for a product. So we search in our learning space or knowledge base, and there's a whole load of options, pricing A, new pricing, updated pricing, pricing 2022. And the poor learner ends up looking for an up-to-date needle in an outdated content haystack. Now, the problem for L&D teams is this. These are our moments of need, right? We've searched to solve a problem. And this friction for finding the right resource or having to sift through multiple resources to find what we need often means we don't find it which creates a negative feedback loop around learning. I search for something, I can't find it, so why should I do it again? That damages L&D's reputation. And because we were unable to help that person solve a problem and probably left them feeling quite stressed and frazzled, we've failed to solve the problem in a moment where we can improve performance and therefore we've lowered our chance of impact happening through learning. And this is essentially why high-performing teams verify that their content is both relevant and updated. And within our data, we saw that 80% of content has been verified in those high-performing teams. So that means they've gone back to check, is this content still useful? Do we need to remove it or update it? And this is a common practice among those high-performing teams. Now, Lulu, I would love to hear your thoughts, not only on how teams are doing this in How Now, but what are kind of the best practices you've seen and the sort of tips you can give people for ensuring their content remains relevant and up-to-date? Yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously there is different ways to do this before I dive into it a little bit further. Um, just to for everyone uh, not using how now, um, we, on each piece of content that you share, you are able, we have a functionality to enable you to verify your content at specific intervals. And you can choose whether you are the relevant person or you're just setting it up. And as well, when you want to kind of uh, get notified to 
search for your content and um, amend it or edit it if relevant. So there is multiple ways. Um, it's not a one size fits all kind of approach here. The reason being, you might be um, in a highly regulated industry where you need to check your content really often, or perhaps you work with specific teams like Gary just explained, uh, where things are changing very, very fast. So you will have to definitely um, ask, change the content. Oh, I think I can start my video now. There we go. Ta -da! Um, so you would have to change the content very quickly to make sure that your people are seeing the relevant content. So it might be that you have to make sure to review it every, every month. For some of the different industry, it might be content that is quite static, that won't really change uh, over the time, over the years. So you might want to select um, a six month kind of interval, but this is super important. Some of our highly uh, performing team, L&D team, uh, the people that I work with as customers, they definitely have a, a content accuracy overall within their LXP of 90% and above, just to make sure that all of the content that is on there is not just a kind of a dump of information that is not relevant to people. So definitely we suggest for any content that is meant to change processes, for example, if you're a fast growing uh, startup, um, to make sure that you always have smaller interval of verification and longer interval if some things are a little bit more static and won't change over time. Yeah, yeah, I think the big lesson there, Lulu, is context, isn't it? I think yeah. a lot of the time people can fall into the trap of setting these arbitrary rules like we need to do X thing every two months. But actually the context is, well, how often do we release new pricing? How often do our regulations change? And then using that. And I guess as well, do you see teams kind of prioritizing sometimes as well? Like you said, if they're in heavily regulated industries and maybe there's a kind of hierarchy that it's that mandatory content that has to be checked and therefore that influences the strategy. Absolutely. Yeah. Moving on to the next best thing that um, high-performing L&D teams do now, in those moments of need, it's really crucial that content is easy to find. Often people think they have a problem with the content itself, but actually discoverability is a key driver of low content engagement as well because people can't use what they can't find. That's why high-performing L&D teams use clear and concise titles that show people the value within the resource. So we'll get into a little bit at how you build good titles shortly, but the average length of a high-performing piece of content, the title was just five words, while no title in the top 100 resources contained more than 10 words. The reason this is useful, often the results will be shown in different screen sizes, different formats, and there will be a cutoff of that title in a lot of knowledge bases, learning platforms. So it's important that we're front-loading the value and also making it super clear what's in that. Now this principle was applied to descriptions as well because essentially it's a title that helps someone find the content and a description that entices people to click through. So 92% of the high performing content used a description and it followed that same rule of let's keep it short and sweet and it just used an average of 11 words. Now what I want to show you is a few examples from the top 100 resources that kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about. So growth and performance cycle is super specific about the thing it solves. Leadership hacks, this is typically something people might search. And then also you can see January's in there, setting stretch goals, there's more context in there. And then also incident management at company name. So again, you can see that even if there's going to be any cutoff or read more point, the key part of what this resource is about is going to appear still. Now, why are these good titles and what makes a good title is potentially a better question. So essentially, we can borrow something from the world of copywriting. Kel surprised that I'm doing this because uh, I'm sure I do this on every webinar or podcast that we do. But good titles tap into something called the four U's. They're ultra specific about the context or the situation at hand. They're useful. Again, we're communicating what the value in the resource is. They're unique. They add that real contextual layer that shows when and where this is going to be helpful. And in some, but not all cases, they're urgent, but a better way to think about this is they're time sensitive. So for example, do we need to put the year in there? Do we need to put the date or the month or completed by, there'd be some sort of time angle that we might need to include. 
And the goal is not to shoehorn all of them in, because like we said, we're dealing with five to 10 words, but the ones that make sense. So before I asked Lulu to share some of her thoughts on how she sees our customers doing this, I thought I would share a quick example with you. And I had to make sure this was 10 words or less, so I wasn't a hypocrite and breaking my own rules, but how to deal with difficult customers when the system's down. Now, this is a good example of some of those four use. Now, it's useful because it's telling us how to deal with difficult customers. We understand that this resource will help us solve a challenge with a particular type of customer. Two of the elements, difficult customers and systems down, also take us into that unique territory. These are super specific, and therefore, when you face that particular problem, the naming of this resource is super helpful for finding the content. And then ultra specific, the systems down is literally one situation that doesn't cross over. There's no um, doubt about what the, the problem at hand is or the problem that you're trying to solve or the, the real pain point you're facing. So that covers us from that ultra specific angle. And if you think about it as well, it's kind of urgent or time sensitive because this is a particularly pressing context for someone if they're searching for a resource. So Lulu, I'd love to know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen countless, you've probably seen more learning resources at this point than, than most people see in their lifetime, but what are the kind of insights you've seen on when teams are being intentional about the names, the descriptions, what are the best practices? Yeah, and first of all, I was actually thinking when uh, you, you shared this insight, when was the last time that you type a 20 word long question to find something? I think it's sometimes we just always have to put ourselves in the learner's shoes. What are they actually going to ask the, the system to find the knowledge they need? And to respond to your, your question, Gary, the, the highly uh, efficient ways of doing this is just always to think about a way to be consistent across the business, across the department, um, across the content that you share so that we know that if we are looking for something specific to say sales, it will always be uh, a question, for example. And this is definitely something that I've seen with uh, customers is the consistency element one, but also not only thinking about your titles uh, and, and, you know, making it short um, and talking the way that your employees are, are, are speaking, but it's also, you know, adding um, elements of description within it if there are multiple ways that could be used. Um, so obviously on Hannah, when you share content, not only you can share a title, which has to be short and snappy and consistent, but you can also add a layer of description underneath, which could be kind of similar, perhaps something that your learners might also want to, uh, to type in. And it will obviously make the search go above everything else just to it will match the results. So I think that's another another thing to think about. A great way as well is just to get informed on how people are calling certain things within the business and just be aware of that so that, again, you can call it different way, uh, different things, but just making sure that your titles kind of speak their language and resonate with them. Um, and there is a good way to do that as well on how now. So you, for some of you, I can see some uh, familiar faces in, in the, the webinar, you have a, uh, a search kind of insight. So what are people searching within the business? And then you can start to utilize that data, that insight to actually create your titles. If this is a search that comes back often, if you don't already have content about it, um, and also getting, of course, all of your data uh, insights of completion, if people are not actually finding the content is perhaps that something to think about to, to amend your your titles and your description to make it more impactful and easier to find yeah 100 i'd love to build on that point you made about speaking the language of your learner again it's another marketing principle but you would never create a piece of content or build out your website without doing that research first to understand how does a customer or a potential customer phrase a problem when they're facing it because if someone is searching for closing deals and we use some sort of language like deal cycle completion if we name our resources that thing the term no one uses of course they're not going to find it and there's so many different ways you can do that like you said if you're already using how now that functionality is there if you've got a website, there's often plugins you can add to your FAQs to see that every um, question that came in, 
you can even just look in Slack, places like that, like when people are saying, oh, hi, have you got um, any information on X? What kind of language are they using there? And then that's how you build resources that not only are easily discoverable, but it's very clear to that end user what they're going to get from, from that. And um, yeah, you make another great point there is if you think about the way we Google, we will only go for those really long, long, long searches when the first one doesn't turn up what we need, right? Like um, mm-hmm. peek behind the curtain, but I was telling Lulu that I took my paddleboard out for the first time last weekend. And it was, uh, I think I searched for how to, what was it? I think it was like how to steer on a paddleboard. But then I realized actually the problem was turning, right? So the first one didn't turn up any of the results. So I went for like how to turn on a paddleboard. And then I realized that it needed more context so you just build it out but actually if the first resource is really clear then it would have been far easier for me to find so um yeah and then i guess the, uh, the other thing on this and lulu you might have some insights on this is to make sure it's not an afterthought i think this is something i've really been guilty of in my time of creating content is to spend sometimes even up to a week creating a piece of content and then spending two minutes writing the title and it's like you kind of have to make sure that the title does justice to the content in it so you know at the very end of writing the piece of content understanding what it is that it solves which pain point what value does it bring and then using that to inform your title write a few variations and then look at which one solves the problem best for the end user so um yeah any thoughts on that lulu yeah definitely so i think also sometimes the titles might not always you can't add as much description in a title as you say it has to be short for search purposes um but the description is definitely a good way to then give a snippet of what the actual content is all about so that you will get more engagement if you are if you're able to share what is actually living in your content you have this extra layer of perhaps having a synonym of the main uh, points within your title so that people will then engage because they will realize very quickly oh yeah that's exactly what i need this is the process on x tool to do x action for example so that then they will engage with the content a lot a lot quicker yeah Perfect. We're moving on to point three, and this is that elite L&D teams empower their internal experts to create content. So I want to talk you through another concept. This is something we call the leaky bucket when it comes to knowledge. And essentially, this is when we fail to capture knowledge that's either shared every day or lives in one person's head. And essentially what happens is when it's little Slack messages here and there, emails, back and forths, informal chats, it drips through those little cracks on a daily basis. And then when someone who's an expert in something decides to leave the company, the knowledge comes spilling out everywhere. We're all in a panic because we're about to lose something we should have been capturing for God knows how long. Uh, And yet, this is essentially the leaky bucket for knowledge. And it's why knowledge capturing and tapping into our internal experts is so crucial and it's something that all high performing L&D teams do so 40% of the content they created was created by people outside the L&D team which means they're really leveraging those internal experts and crowdsourcing the content creation because I'd love to know actually how many people have found creating content to be a bottleneck this is often where a lot of small L&D teams struggle is a feeling that they need to create all of the content and it all falls on their shoulders and this is part of the reason i think high performing lnd teams leverage other people in their business and also you see on the screen the average number of collaborators for courses those more traditional courses and, and formats of learning uh, is six and then for something called nuggets in how now that we'll get on to shortly the average number of collaborators is four so again you can see there's a real crowdsourced element to how these teams are creating their content and Lulu I'm sure this is where you have an absolute goldmine of best practices lessons learned to share but what are those big wins and best tips and tools from high performing teams who are leveraging their internal experts yeah um, so do you have another hour there? <laughs> okay, I'll try to <laughs> make it short. Uh, but perhaps one thing I would start with, I don't know, Gary, if you allow me, is something not to do. Um, I would say it's definitely important not to, and this is where I've been seeing a lot of success with my customers, when it's not overcomplicated to actually be able to share content and it's very much guided. We have the relevant enablement session, Um, so that I know where to share my content, how to 
title it so that uh, it's it's efficient um, because if you think about it, everyone has something to to share, and it's important to make it as low friction as possible for these content creators. Otherwise, if you have to go through hoops and hoops and hoops of approval of yes, this is the right content you can now publish to the business. Obviously, you'll do once, you do it twice, but your your stakeholders will not, your, your internal experts won't do it anymore because it's just taking too much of their time. So I think one big part of it is just make it simple. Trust your people. Um, it's not, uh, you know, unwritable. You can just always go back to it and perhaps amend it if it really isn't something that you need for the business. Um, but what one thing I would also add, so that's the thing not to do, don't make it too complicated. And the second thing is just, yeah, try to tap in these um, these stakeholders that, you know, you've seen that are whether uh, managers that have pushed learning to their team. And that could also be something that they share knowledge on with the rest of the, the leadership group, for example, um, so that they bring this value within the business and then they enable other people as well uh, in the business and they kind of are the learning champions. We do see often customers, even as quickly as an implementation, starting to get these different stakeholders because if they heard that there is a specific pain point around specific team, they start to enable them as quickly as the implementation or right after launch um, so that people can, they understand the platform, but also they understand what um, what they, they have to do within, uh, within the sharing learning champion role um, and how they can benefit to the rest of the business. So I would say it's definitely important for all of the LND team to collaborate on that. And we probably use this word a bit too much in our implementation, but it's definitely important not to silo your teams is making sure because they will also be able to support you. As Gary was saying, often we hear we are the only one sharing the content and this is therefore straining our team. But actually, if you utilize everyone else, there is content that they might share uh, that would be relevant to the entire organization as well. So yeah, definitely something to, to keep in mind. And this is where I've seen the most success stories is where they have this kind of champion, uh, learning champion communities within, within their SMEs. Yeah. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there, Lulu, because a lot of the time people are maybe getting into that silo mindset and thinking they are the only ones to create content. But actually what you'll find, and this answers the question typically as well, of who should I try and collaborate with? But there will be people in your business that are already sharing lots of content. It might not just be in the formal way or in a certain place that you're, you might do it. So you have to look at, again, like Slack is a great example. Who are the people responding to queries when someone else is going, hey, do you have this? Do you know how I can do X? And also just that, you know, who do they go to in their moment of need for that resource and that information? Because those are the people you can use to plug that leaky bucket, stop them asking repeat questions. Because I guess the part of this as well, Lulu, is it gives you consistent answers to questions and it stops you bothering your best people because you're capturing one consistent answer rather than 10 times a day someone going, oh, remind me how to do X and all this sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. And it's a great one that you said around, uh, yeah, Slack or MS team. It's all, it will always come back as long, but now you can just use that content uh, creative power, superpower and share it once and only just redirect your people to the relevant, um, to the relevant content when it, in the right time as well. So people can find it and enable themselves as well. Yeah. And it becomes actually a useful habit for yourself because I know that I'm guilty of this. Sometimes I'll send Slack messages and then I'll go to myself. I'm sure I've sent this to someone before. And then that's the nudge to me to go, I should just save this as a nugget and how now, and then yeah. reach that to people yeah. and kind of help foster that knowledge sharing culture. So it's like, it's a way to hold yourself accountable once you get into that process of creating content. Yeah. And I would also add something, actually, we always, Think about the internal experts as your managers uh, or your leadership kind of group. 
But actually, if you think about it, like I said before, everyone has something to share. So I've seen um, with uh, some of the customer, one of the customers I've been working with, someone who is great in uh, a particular tool. She's not been part of the business for very long, but actually she's already created this kind of uh data bank of, of content that everyone can now use because she's just the guru on that specific tool. So it's not, it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to be a senior uh, person within the business or within your industry. It just is based on the skill that you have um, that can be helped, uh, useful for everyone. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Influencers from a learning perspective live at every level of your business i mean sometimes to give people a good example um if you follow any sort of like fitness influencers online a lot of them a lot of the time haven't done a formal qualification lots of studying they've learned through their own practice and then they're sharing the best practices with you and those are people we're willing to listen to whereas we're not necessarily going to go and find like professor stuffy from the university of fitness and then try and follow everything he says right so there's a lot i think underlying a lot of this is following the ways we naturally learn and and that's one of them you know people we don't go to the top ceo of a company to learn something we go to people who are engaging people who seem like they're communicating value so um maybe a useful lesson to learn we are halfway through now so i just want to remind people if you have any questions the q a function is open so you can drop them in there and we'll try and get to a few before the end uh, and also if you just want to share any thoughts with the rest of the attendees the chat um, function is there as well so feel free to use that Lula we will move swiftly on because time is flying by the fourth lesson from high performing teams is that again it might seem obvious but as we dig into this a bit more I think a lot of the themes we talked about become clear but it's that they encourage social learning and the validation of people who learn socially so and again another scenario but if you just think about the way most of us use LinkedIn we go on there, someone we respect or admire or we think is a good influencer likes a post and it appears in our newsfeed. Now, that like is a signal that it's a useful piece of content and we should go and check out what it's about. Uh, and then if you look at layer deeper within the comments, it's typically the case that someone has shared something useful. And then within the comments, lots of people were adding their take. They're building upon what's been shared They're adding a bit more life experience or cultural differences or like norms for the industries they work in. And essentially, this is what high performing teams are doing by enabling discussions, likes, shares, comments. And 83% of the best performing resources had a discussion enabled. And on average, there was 20 likes on those posts. So we're essentially doing two things in a similar way to our LinkedIn example. One, we're building a collective brain because every time we comment, we're adding to the debate, we're adding to the resource to help build it out. And also we're building a knowledge sharing culture. So like I said, likes are a signal, not only to me as a learner, that this piece of content useful but if i created the content and it gets a bunch of likes as an internal expert that's a great piece of validation for me that i should continue creating more content right people have found this useful they've left a comment to say how useful it was and they want to build upon it so it's a nice big positive feedback loop for everyone involved and like i said discussions allow you to build that content um, compound knowledge with some contextual wisdom so we'll go back to our sales example one last time but imagine I'm in a sales team in London. I put together a list of the five best ways to close a deal. And someone in our US office or in the Middle East adds their insights in the form of a comment that says, these are all great, but actually with point four, because of the cultural norms or the context we're working in or the industries and customers we typically work with in this region, this is how I would approach why. And again, that just allows us to build that collective wisdom together. It's a platform for all of us to kind of learn socially, but transparently. And so everyone can see how we're doing it. But Lulu, I know you've also got some insights on teams that drive engagement, they build a community of learning. So what are those sort of best practices you often see? Yeah, so I used to work with a, a manager of a customer success team, actually, um, that always that did a really, really good job as creating nuggets. So, you know, your kind of informal learning and just making sure that processes were clear to to uh, his team. But the way he was doing it was that at the end of every single nugget or even courses that he was sharing, 
there would be a question at the end of um, where he would ask to share comments from everyone within the team. Um, so and also redirecting to the kind of discussion forum. So that made already, the, you know, and he would chase if there is no uh, answers after a couple of days of the content having been shared, he would tag the people directly on the discussion forum uh, to make sure that people would get notified and go back to that content and share. And of course, at the beginning, it was, you know, people were a little bit shy, but once that happened every time the nugget was shared people would in the team would already uh give their comments their feedback their thoughts or even share experiences that would kind of uh, if it was more for leadership training or difficult conversations with customer so then everyone would learn from each other within their this team and it was really highly efficient so yeah i would definitely say um always kind of sharing the context of course of the uh, of the of the nugget of the course that you're doing but always asking a clear call to action at the end so that people can really and feeling safe to share their experience their comments etc and keep doing it whether it's in your own team or uh, on you know on a on a business level so that people can learn because again as we've said earlier we can all learn we all have some relevant experiences that might be useful for uh, from other people so yeah that was uh, that was the first thing and also um some other things that i've seen is obviously sharing the content on and meeting the people where they are basically it's not just creating the content it's done people are surely going to see it and thinking of another content to share but it's actually meeting the communities where they are already talking about learning or they're already learning from each other like using the ms team integration and the slack integration so really getting to the point where your people are there because this is where they work and then keep sharing this content and talking about that content there as well um, so, yeah, I would say that these were the main two points that came to mind around social learning. Yeah. Yeah, it's remarkable the amount of times people share on any sort of platform a piece of content and then say, oh, I can't believe no one left a comment. And then there was no signpost within the copy to say, well, just leave, like, let me know if you have any thoughts, yeah. drop them in the comment, which is often another thing you'll see on LinkedIn a lot of the time. And, and actually to really now the, the final now in this coffin of the example of LinkedIn. But like you said, a lot of the times if a post doesn't get engagement, you'll see people on LinkedIn tagging a bunch of other relevant people and just saying, can you share your insights, get the ball rolling? So again, it's just another sort of lesson you can apply from that one. Moving into our fifth point, and that is that the top L&D teams create content that can be consumed in the flow of work by using informal formats that feel familiar. So more than a third of the content created by high-performing L&D teams comes in the form of a nugget that Lulu, I was hoping you would mind explaining very briefly what a nugget is and how some of our customers uh, use them. And I'll quickly pop an example on the screen while you're, you're talking about that. Yes, of course. So um, a nugget, we call it as a nugget, is um, your piece of kind of micro learning. It's a little bit of a, uh, of a brain dump, as you can see. It can have multiple uh, content content type inside it could be images of course text to one explain the context or ask questions at the end to enable the social learning element um it could also have uh gifts etc so it's really it has we can have documents etc so yeah just think about it as your micro learning informal bit of content and it could be utilized to uh share processes or uh specific approaches prices or for sales teams etc so it can be really anything from that perspective yeah and then what some of the well personally maybe i'll share a couple of the ways i use it and then you can kind of talk a bit more about how our customers use it but the big one for me is that i use our browser extension which i've added to google and essentially every time i'm looking at something online whether it's a YouTube video, a podcast, a blog post, essentially I can capture that content as a nugget in the flow of work and then kind of name it in the appropriate way, as we've already discussed, add it to the right channels, share it with the right people. But for me, that would be the, the big way. And, and then also, as I mentioned earlier, 
if I get a message in Slack that I know should be captured and used somewhere else, then I will use our Slack integration to save that as a nugget and the same rule apply. I'll make sure I name it properly, add it to the right channels and places. But are there any sort of other um, sort of useful things you'd mention about nuggets before we kind of dive into the, the data a little bit more, Lulu? Yeah, of course, I completely forgot I had to talk about the second part of the question. Sorry, Gary. Um, yeah, so it can be used in multiple ways. Um, what we see work really well with nuggets, there is a couple of things. So it could be one from a business perspective. It could be anything like values, policies, <clears throat> benefits that you have within uh, within the business. So again, when I talk about the values, I think it's a good place to start if you are trying to build uh, a learning culture within the business. So of course, when people get onboarded, if you shared a couple of nuggets around the values in your business, then it kind of, it will be remembered throughout their, their journey as an employee. And so I think that is definitely something that works really well. Um, on a job aid perspective, enablement content is also really helpful. So for example, I don't know if you're working on HubSpot, on Salesforce, or on different kind of software that you have to use every day. The nuggets are really good uh, to, to utilize, to share step-by-step -step processes so that people can have their tool already open, use their extension and kind of follow along without having to switch context. And this is really the reason why we created Nuggets in the first place is to make sure that, as I uh, said before, you can meet people where they work and you can enable them. So yeah, the enablement piece is quite important. So for example, yeah, for any tools that you use uh, at work, processes also so that again, people can follow step by steps um, and yeah, policies or any kind of short uh, videos that you, you might want your your use your learners to to have uh, access to. So I would say these are the main top three, probably, but it can be anything, uh, really. It could be an announcement, a product update, if you work with a product team, um, just to make sure that people have access to the relevant information uh, as soon as it comes out uh, or is delivered so that you will never have a worry of your product team or your sales team being on the call and not talking about specific functionalities in the right way, for example. So that's really quick, good to utilize Nugget for content that needs to get um, accessed at a very specific time. So for example, using the, the extension, I would say. So yeah, timing is also uh, an important part of a Nugget is finding the people when they need it rather than, you know, long courses that might take a little bit more time. Yeah. Yeah. I think the format inherently allows you to, or it kind of enables you to be specific. Like the best thing about a lot of the like 90% of the nuggets I see is they tackle a specific problem. And that's also yeah. a principle people could take away and apply within yeah. their L&D anyway, is to look at whether we are creating a specific resource that solves one problem and therefore yeah. that allows us if we come back to our naming example we should be able to explain which problem it solves and if the resource is packed full of a million different things it doesn't allow someone to uh, attack a problem in the moment of need and follow that and also yeah you made a great point there that timing beats perfection so because a nugget allows you to embed a loom video just drop in a snippet from a podcast that you could cut out something that's going to allow someone in their moment of need to solve a problem a nugget by allowing you to embed those kind of different types of content does allow you to live by that mantra of timing beats perfection i'm sure a lot of people joining us today will be familiar with that issue of someone says they need x resource we go away and we have to follow some sort of red tape and sign off and design process and by the time we hit publish the problem that person wanted to solve has been and gone and with without going on about feedback loops and so on again those people have fallen foul to a negative feedback loop around learning so yeah i would say those are those are great principles people um can apply yeah. and just to come back to the sorry Lily, you're gonna say something <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was going to say that it's it's um on, in your title you have the informal format, and that makes me think that I've seen quite a lot of L and D experts being quite particular, and I think it's uh, I would like to put it out there that too often 
people are spending too much time to think about what the content actually looks like. Whereas, does it really matter for your learners? Not really. They just need the information. It doesn't matter if it's pink and with nice uh, font, etc. It's actually more important that it explains to them how to do a specific thing. So just something to put out there. You will listen, you will not. Uh, but just don't spend too much time around the way this informal content that enables your people look and rather just push it out so that you can always amend it in the future. But it yeah, it, it don't it doesn't really matter. So I would say just take it as a as a little advice. Uh, more better to push content out that is actually going to be relevant than as Gary you said, wait six months until it's actually perfect and it looks nice, etc. Where yeah. you, you might have fifty percent of your team that have uh, needed it at some point but didn't find it and therefore yeah got disengaged yeah the best example would be any two how-to video that was created around the time of the iphone 3 because the quality is going to be terrible it's someone like in terrible lighting talking you through something but it stood the test of time because it solves a problem right so um so just to wrap up this point essentially by tapping into nuggets and internal experts to lean into our previous point the companies that these high performing LD teams are creating content that's relevant to and can be applied in the context of work. Because, in a nutshell, people who've solved the business problem before are sharing the wisdom of how they did it with other people in a format that's easily applied when they encounter the problems themselves. So, this is kind of the process that we're talking through here. And this is reinforced by the average time spent on the formal content, like Scorman courses. Uh, which was 46 minutes, but with nuggets, it was only 17 minutes. So that specificity, that fact that it solves a particular problem really helped um, people apply it in the flow of work, which is obviously hugely important because it's when we can influence performance. Yeah, I would say as well, sorry, just to go back mm -hmm. on the nuggets, that even though um, it might not, some, some of the content might not look like it's learning and you will have quite a lot of repeats just because there are processes um, so you would see that quite often people go back and go back until one day they don't need the nugget anymore because it's finally um, understood and, and retained. So you will probably have a lot more go back to nuggets as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The point isn't to know everything, but it's to know where you can find it. And all of these yeah. tips we've kind of given you today, whether it's naming, making sure resources are specific, tapping into internal experts, they inherently build this culture anyway. Um I want to make sure we've got some time for questions, Lulu. So I'm going to kind of rattle through this last point and then we'll open the Q&A up to people. But it's a very simple one, again, that often gets overlooked. And it is that we need to be tapping into the power of headers, thumbnails and images. I've got one last scenario. I'm, I'm like the scenario man today. I just love a scenario. But the last time, oh, wait, let's talk about two scenarios, actually, would be greedy. The last time you read a blog post and the most recent YouTube search that you did uh, and I'd love to know if anyone agrees with these in the chat, but I'd be pretty confident that the blog post had a relevant header image and either some sort of visual or video within the post. And also when you hit search on YouTube, part of your decision of what video you clicked on was probably influenced by the thumbnail, consciously or subconsciously. And essentially high performing learning content plays by the same rules because 80% of the best performing resources use the header image, while 100% use thumbnails to help improve the click-through rate from search results. And just to give you a bit of rule of thumb for how to approach this, according to YouTube, 90% of their top performing videos use a custom thumbnail, which is specific and relevant about the content in the video. But obviously we can't sit here creating thumbnails all day. So if you use stock images, a good rule of thumb is that people images tend to perform better than objects or scenery, for example. And according to Search Engine Journal, the online content uh, containing visuals, images, videos tend to receive up to 90% more views than those without. So this is something we saw across the data as well, because within con our content that we analyzed, 41% included an image within the resource, while 16% incorporated video content of some kind. Lulu, the floor is yours. Tell us, what are some of the best things you've seen teams doing when they're creating content using images, thumbnails, headers, and so on? I would say um, usually it's been by being creative, having fun, but also using a little bit of humor at times. 
Um, so yeah, I've seen some um, great instances where first of all, it uses the kind of um, learning brand that they've created. So it's all kind of in, 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 in brand and also specific topics using specific colors uh, of thumbnails so that it's really consistent across the, the entire LXP and it's easy for people to understand what content is to what after a while. Um, but yeah, I've, I've seen some uh, customers using memes and GIFs, which really resonates and it brings a little bit of humor as well on, you know, perhaps a bit more daunting topics. Um, so I would say, yeah, just bring that to life by, you know, being creative, um, making sure that you, you resonate with specific uh, audiences. So, for example, I think GIFs and memes really resonate well with uh, Gen Z, but it also makes your your content a little bit more lively. Uh, and therefore, people will be more likely to go and click on them uh, in, in the first place to see what's what's the content about and how it can help them on day to day. So, yeah, definitely stay on brand if possible without also, again, not thinking about uh, too much about, you know, if it's not perfect, uh, it's it's OK. And you can always amend it in your next kind of verification cycle so that uh, you might put it in your marketing team, for example, to, to support but you can obviously use stock images and, and other uh, websites that would help you to create memes and GIFs and things like that. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And I think as well, sometimes the quality of the the thumbnail, especially with things like YouTube, often yeah. influences how willing people are to share it. So if you take that extra bit of time to make sure it's on brand, it looks good. I think you'll improve the chances of people sharing it as well. But I have no data for once to back that up. I'm just going off anecdotal and my hunch. So don't hold me to account on that. Um, oh, that is the end of the six high-performing uh, lessons from high-performing L&D teams. I'm aware that not everyone watching this will be live. There'll be plenty of people catching up on the recording. And we've shared quite a few links in the chat to um, see some of these features in action and some content. So just look, take a look at the description wherever you're watching or listening to this recording. And those links will be there. And also this is just scratching the surface. So a lot of what we talked about today is about improving content, but also there's something these high-performing L&D teams are doing is they're putting skills first as opposed to content first. So when we create content and put it first, we distribute it at times when it's not relevant. We're not thinking about this solving particular problems to help people build skills. And therefore it makes learning feel like an unwanted interruption. But really what we should be doing is thinking about the skills people need, because that's a common language everyone speaks. How does our learning enable people to build those skills in order to have business impact, solve problems, support people's growths? That is the longest tee up ever to say that you can download a free guide that covers all of these things. Death of the LMS, a step-by-step -step guide to skills first L&D and how companies learn now by scanning the QR code on the screen if you're with us live or watching the recording, or if you're listening, again, just check the description of the episode on YouTube or your podcast feed. So that kind of brings us to the end. I would love to know, well, first of all, thank you everyone for joining us. I forgot to say that, very rude of me, um, and hope you found it really useful. And we'll just jump into the Q&A. There's still time to drop a question or two in the Q&A. But Lulu, we've got one going back to when we empower people to become contributors, to tap into our internal experts. We don't want to swap one bottleneck for another, basically, where we're now saying go and create, but we want to check everything before it goes out. So how do we stop being a blocker to people sharing content as an L&D team? For me, just to give you time to maybe think about the answer, so I'm not throwing you under the, the bus completely, but um, for me, it's about guidelines, I think, isn't it? You know, like, what are the things that all good content must have so we can put the guideline in place to make sure the title is relevant and reflective of the problem that it solves, for example? We can put in best practices, like if you're going to use an image, make sure you add um, a caption to the image. This is another actual stat that the second most read thing other than a title in a piece of content is the caption for an image. So, for example, we might say every time you add an image, um, use a caption. Um, every time you write a piece of content, leave some guidance to leave a comment, for example. They're, they're all the sort of things we could maybe consider to be guidelines that help us drive consistency. But I guess I'd love to hear what you've kind of seen work when when teams are enabling their experts to create content. 
Yeah, and the channel guideline, uh, content creation guideline, one hundred percent important. Uh, making sure that you have it written down, perhaps in a nugget, um, or you could even, you know, have roundtables around how to to support your teams and enablement as well is an important one. And I guess in so in the future, once you start getting people to share. Um, Obviously, you can always, as, a, as we have some customers doing this, making sure that the LND general user, for example, is always added as a collaborator on each piece of content so that there is no blocker per se. So everyone could share this information within the business, within their team. But the LND uh, team or the LND generic user would then be able to kind of review it and perhaps amend uh, if if required or ask the main uh, content share, the person who shared to to amend it slightly. We also have on a separate note um, a little flag on each of the content so that people can share their feedback uh, if it's not content that is appropriate to the business and that would go to uh, all of the admins or within the business. So some some little things to think about content um, content guidelines always enablement sessions also perhaps starting small and giving more and more sharing power uh, after you know people have proven themselves in a way so for example um starting with specific people to be able to share within their team or specific learning audiences and then kind of making it um to the everyone business after a while um after you've spent a bit more time sharing content within the business yeah. i would say these are the top three things Perfect. that i've seen just to build on that as well and give people a moment or two if they do have any questions to drop those in the q a i think this kind of comes back to what we spoke about earlier, but it's where do you start with who shares content, right? If we can find those internal experts who are already sharing content, who are already putting together sort of good resources, who already know what good looks like, then if we start with those people, then we do have this bank of this is what good learner-generated content looks like, and we can share that with people. Because I often find it super useful to have that reference point for, look, this is what a good piece of content created by a learner looks like. You can actually see it in action. You can kind of replicate the structure if that's helpful. So that would be my other sort of tip to people is to look at who your internal influencers are who are already creating good content, if there are any. And then once you have created some good content, tapping into your internal experts, just to share that with people as an example of what good looks like. And of course, that will then create the positive feedback loop to the person who created it to say, oh, well, someone shared my piece of content as an example of what good looks like. And the snowball effect will continue. So I think we're all good, Lulu. There were no more questions, which means we did a fantastic job, which is my one of my favorite dad jokes that I use every time we do any of these sessions. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thank you. A lot of good feedback in the chat as well, Lulu, and people really enjoyed uh, a lot of the tips for today.